0: And I put on the the VR headset and I sit in that world and for an hour I'm doing my thing and I take it off and she's staring at me and she says to me, you're never doing that again.
1: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. What you're hearing is something called Project Raven from Genvid. We're going to talk about video games this week, something that may be a little hard to do in the audio format of a podcast. But what you're hearing and I'm seeing is called a massively interactive live event. Video games that are played, but more importantly, watched with the audience participating in the outcome.
0: A massive interactive live event. Um, it's a new form of media that mixes live stream games and traditional linear uh, VOD. Um, and the most exciting part of it is that the audience themselves decide everything that's going to happen.
1: Genvid founder Jacob Navok, who just landed $113 million in Series C funding. I remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books when I was a a young teenager. Uh, A little like that, but on an audience-sized level, are they voting? There are voting
0: elements, but really they are doing everything. They're helping the characters craft. They're helping the characters complete projects. They're solving puzzles. They're making daily decisions that will affect the story. Um, And so it's not... A clean. I'm going to pick between A and B, and therefore B is going to result. Um, you're actually deciding all of the nuances of how that story is going to be encapsulated. Uh, further to the point, you can't go back and retry. <laughs> what right. happens in what happens in the story is actually what happens in the story. There is only one timeline. So the audience the is
1: helping the character and is and is maybe uh, 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 it's making some change to the environment around the character that then uh, it changes the outcome. But they're not voting or, you know, OK, the character is going to take a left, not a right.
0: Correct. That That's not the level of decision making we're enabling. We're we're trying to get you to assist the character in the same way that if you were watching, for example, a live stream of Big Brother, you could help tell them, hey, maybe you should go socialize or maybe you should go get something to eat based off of the statistics that that character has. Um, And so we want you to make intelligent and informed decisions because we give you the information on how the AI is feeling and, and doing. But importantly, the AI themselves don't always have to listen to you.
1: Genvid's first success was a game called Rival Peak, sort of survivor meets Hunger Games, and that watch time in the millions.
0: Well, in terms of minutes watched, which is the key metric that we were looking at, we were over 100 million minutes watched for the experience, which I think is pretty good for a a new IP. Tens of millions of viewers around the world, millions registered into the game. The TV series by itself has, I think right now, between 140 to 150 million views on it, which is tremendous. Um, About 60% male, 40% female. uh, And top markets, United States, India, Mexico, Brazil, Philippines. Very, very mobile about 85% Android, 12% iOS, and the remaining desktop.
1: And that's because um, Android is so dominant outside of the United States. Precisely.
0: Like, if it was U.S., it would, it's far higher iPhone. But also, we didn't launch with iPhone up until about week six of the experience. So it was almost 99% Android for the first half of Rival P.
1: Genvid also working on a sports-like overlay for video game viewers, much like NBC puts over a baseball game for its viewers. The balls and the strikes are indicated. If there are runners on base all overlaid on top of the game.
0: So if you think of, you know, baseball for a second, the camera is on the pitcher, the pitcher is throwing the ball. The camera by itself does not know who the pitcher is, that there is a ball in frame and that that ball is moving at you know, 86 miles per hour. We have other technologies that we apply to generate that data. But when we create a video game, the quote unquote video game engine, the thing that creates the image knows exactly what's in that frame. It knows that you have a pitcher. It knows that you have a ball. It knows the exact speed because it uses that calculation to make the image. It's actually the inverse. And because that data is in every frame of the game, we can extrapolate that from within the engine. And so what my company's software does is it captures audio, video, and game engine data and timestamps it on a frame-by-frame basis. It sends the audio and the video data to Twitch or to YouTube or to Facebook, or later this year to Huya, which is 10-cent streaming platform in China, or proprietary platforms, And it lets those platforms scale that. It operates on top of the platforms that consumers go to today, and we send alongside it our time-coded metadata. When the user opens it, we look at the time code that came from the video and we assemble it back. And what you get is a level of interaction that actually feels as though you have the game running live on your computer. Some people think it's magic. I refer to it as a magic trick. Real magic doesn't exist. But, you know, magic in Las Vegas is a billion-dollar entertainment business. (laughs) And so we fool you into thinking that you're able to react with the game because you have the data that you're interacting with live, even though because of latency, which is the time it takes to generate an image, on Twitch or on YouTube or on Facebook, that video could be 30
1: seconds old. That's true. And and the person pl- actually physically playing the game has no notion any of this is happening. Correct. Exactly. We don't even operate on their machines. Any more so than a, a baseball player in real life has any idea that there is a, you know, a display of the box of the pitch of whether it was a ball or a strike. He's out there playing the game, he's unaware of the overlays that are being sent uh, to people at home.
0: 100%. And we may not even be operating on the machine of that player. In fact, most of our software operates in the cloud. And the great thing is that most of the games that we want to interact with are what we call multiplayer games. There's a server. Um, And so all we have to do is read from that server what the player is doing, and we can go and recreate the game from different camera angles or at a much higher rendering capability somewhere
1: else. Now, because you're not the game maker, you're not the electronic arts or the whatnot, you have to then convince the game maker not to let you into the software, but for the game maker to create the hooks that your software can can get the data from. What's your elevator pitch to game makers? Well, the game makers are my customers. And this is very
0: important to me as an entrepreneur. I don't want to compete with them for their customers. A lot of businesses came into this space saying, we want to be platforms, consumer-facing platforms. And they built businesses where they were leveraging the publisher's data or APIs to build moats around themselves. Well, what they find out very quickly, and I came from publishing, this is what I did, is that publishers own their intellectual property and can shut you down. And so the real business opportunity is and always will continue to be creating customers out of the game developers themselves. So I don't go to them and say, build hooks into your game. I go to them and I say, I have software that will help you achieve your goals, just like Unity, just like Unreal Engine do. And I work with both of those engines as well. I couple with them and I plug into what they have. And so developers can very easily use me to create the products that they want to generate and stream to their fans.
1: And those two are such an important part of almost every video game made these days that you, you have that in almost automatically. So who's, who's making money and where? I assume it's largely an advertising play. Well, today it is, but where it should go
0: is microtransaction. In other words, it should look a lot like the mobile ecosystem, but for interactive streaming. And I have very strong conviction on the type of experience this is going to become. And I think that for media companies, for game developers, for sports broadcasters as well, the ability to bring video game like microtransactions to live streams is going to generate tens of billions of dollars in revenue.
1: And give me an example of a microtransaction. A microtransaction is, for example, in
0: Fortnite when you buy a skin or buy a new cosmetic item. And so what I think is going to happen is you're going to play and experience whatever a future rival peak looks like, and you're going to want to name a house in the stream after yourself, or you're going to want to help, you know, change the desert and turn it into a bed of flowers, or you're going to want to directly help a character, and you're going to just throw money into points that affect the stream. And if you want proof of this, that is the multi-billion dollar business that Huya, which is again, Tencent streaming platform in China, is made up of. All of the Asian streaming platforms have built significant moats, not off of advertising, which is a much smaller opportunity that the Western streaming platforms have been after, but over microtransactions. So you can watch a streamer and send them a virtual rose or donate money for them to say your name or to participate in playing with them.
1: Right. I want to bring that
0: opportunity to the developers.
1: I, I, it, no harm if I have a little you know, a little bank of tokens spending the equivalent of 10 cents US to, to send a rose to a, a player times all those people watching. And all of a sudden you have a revenue stream. Precisely. And this is really important from two perspectives. People say, yeah, but why would
0: why would you want to have your name said or, or do any of these go watch Twitch. That's what donations on Twitch are. Right? People are donating a dollar or five dollars to the streamer. And they just get so a they shout out have, from that streamer. Exactly. You know, hey, it's Joe in, in
1: Minneapolis and, and Joe's thrilled.
0: Yeah. And, and so imagine if that wasn't just a streamer saying your name, but And I'm going to use uh, an IP example that we're not working with. So I, you know, uh, but imagine in, for instance, in Mario, if the Goomba, that mushroom that he stomps on had your name on it because your friend trolled you by putting it there. And everybody watching the stream could see it. Um, We, I I worked for a, a very, very large publisher called Square Enix Holdings. I worked directly for their CEO for many, many years. And I led worldwide business development and strategy. And we had... A game, um, you know, we did Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest and Tomb Raider and all those titles. We had a game called Sengoku Iksa in Japan, uh, which was about the Warring States period. And it was a very, very simple uh, HTML game, not even HTML5, like old school HTML game. And you would build castles and then armies would come and try to destroy your castle and it was this big social game. And people would spend tens of thousands of dollars a month on their castle to make it look pretty so they could show off how pretty their castle was. That's how important, you know, it is to be able to do these things. Why do people spend money in Fortnite? Those cosmetics don't make an actual difference in gameplay. They do it because they love showing off? Why did they do things on Twitch? Why did they create TikTok? It's that. And so if you have the ability to monetize that against well-known media IP in a place where people may not be immersed in that content, and this is part two of what I want to talk about, you've got a huge opportunity. And so let's talk about immersion and time and the willingness to pay spectrum. So when you play a video game, that demands your attention. If you think about The average American watching four and a half, five hours of television a day, that attention-grabbing, attention-demanding content is really only an hour. That's the Game of Thrones that you're watching. And the rest of it is background noise, cooking shows, reality television. You're cleaning the house while watching it. It's there almost like white noise. Um, But you want to interact, like you want to be able to affect an impact. Um, And so in video games, you have to have attention paid. You you can't move forward in Call of Duty without pushing the controller. You can't crush candy in Candy Crush without tapping the phone. And so is there an opportunity, is the first question that we ask, to create content that you can interact with that doesn't demand immersiveness, skill, or attention? In Rival Peak, you can just sit back and watch. You can help a character. You can read a dialogue. You can participate in influence in what it is that you are seeing. But you don't need to be skilled at it. And if you just let it run in the background, you can enjoy that too. It's got great music. It's got great visuals. And what we want to do is start to pair that with a business model that lets you pay or participate In a way that you're comfortable with. So instead of needing to, you know, spend 60 bucks on a video game, you can contribute because at that moment you feel like it. And up until now, it's been a very black and white issue. I'm going to watch it for free on Twitch or I'm going to buy it at the store or I'm going to buy some microtransactions. And your willingness to pay Spectrum was all or nothing. And here what I'm trying to say is there's an entire ecosystem of people, particularly like myself, who are very busy, who has a almost four year old who walked in to this call just before we were beginning to record and don't have the time to dedicate skill or attention or immersiveness into traditional video game content, but love watching Twitch and would love to be able to participate in that and have the, you know, Spending money that, similar to a cup of coffee, if I could go and affect it, I would. And that's what the donation ecosystem is about. So I want to bring that back into content. Up until now, it's been primarily about creators. And I'm saying the media companies, the video game developers, independent studios, all have an opportunity to generate amazing interactive content on these platforms that
2: will generate new revenue streams. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code Wondery at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: I don't know that big media understands it, but because I normally talk about venture capitalists, talk about whether venture capital understands it. Are are you able to, especially with people who and I am I am so overly stereotyping here, don't necessarily play Call of Duty. Uh, I bet there's some VCs who are just kick ass at Call of Duty. Um, are you able to communicate what it is you're trying to do and have them get it?
0: When we started fundraising about five years ago for our seed, the majority of capital in the Valley really understood platforms rather than game enterprise software. And so frequently when we were pitching, what we got asked was, if the tech is so great, why don't you go and build a better Twitch? And I, I think that that's the kind of normal thesis. You've got a better idea than MySpace, go build a Facebook, right? Sure. So I never thought that that was the right play. So I was really strongly looking for investors who would buy into a concept around selling tools to game developers and media companies, not trying to be a platform. And there were surprisingly few Now, one thing, and this is part two of how I wanted to answer this question, that has changed is you've seen the growth of game-oriented funds. Many of these didn't exist five years ago. You have my investors, which are Galaxy Interactive, that invest into Studios Makers Fund, that invest into Game Studios. You have people who are not my investors, um, but we're very friendly within the ecosystem. Griffin Gaming Partners and BitCraft who also invest into studios and great companies like Manticore. Uh, And so I think that, you know, there exists now a very strong understanding that good game content actually becomes platforms in and of itself and creates recurring returns. Uh, and in order for you to play in this ecosystem, you have to accept risks that you normally wouldn't accept, which is the fact that games are a hit-based business. But I don't I don't think that that looks generally different than software. Software is a hit-based business, too. <laughs> Either you've created really good HR software and everyone's going to use you, or you haven't created good HR software and your SaaS platform is going to go bust. Um and so that, that ecosystem has grown into, I think, a billion or even more than a billion in terms of funds under management um, between Mark capital and Griffin and makers and others in the space, uh, just dedicated toward the gaming ecosystem. And Andreessen Horowitz has come in very hard into this ecosystem in, in the last few years, too, and invested into a lot of great studios and, and companies. So um, I, I think that that's drastically changed in the last five years.
1: What do you think of the future of virtual reality uh, as far as gaming goes? I I enjoy playing a game, but I want to sit back and and flop on the couch and use my Xbox controller. I don't necessarily want to jump up and down, even if it's immersive. I That's not the experience that I'm looking for.
0: I'm of a very similar mindset to you. So I, I was the tip of the spear for tech at Square Enix Holdings. And so, you know, when Oculus came out, they shipped us six of the original headset. And I took one home one day and, you know, I came home after work. And my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife sitting on the sofa. And, you know, th- the end of the work day is the time in which we watch TV shows together. Um, and I put on the, the VR headset and... I sit in that world and for an hour I'm doing my thing and I take it off and she's staring at me and she says to me, you're never doing that again. <laughs> it was a, it was very immersive for me it was fundamentally antisocial for her. Um, we,
1: people have enough trouble with spouses in Call of Duty. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Imagine if they 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 couldn't even wave their hand in front you. of you. Yeah. They literally
1: you can't hear you. They la, can't la, see la, you. La, 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 la,
0: not listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you might as well be in a different house for that. I I believe that VR has its use cases. I think that there are situations where immersion is great but I don't see that level of immersion as a mass entertainment experience. I think that those are for very specific. I'm going to spend the next eight hours in this game and I'm going to feel part of this world and it doesn't matter to me, you know, that there are people around me or I have other things to do. Like a lot of my gaming experience, especially growing up, was friends on a sofa Play right. Smash Brothers together or Golden Eye together, and I don't think that you get that from it. And so, what's important here is VR doesn't replace that; it offers additional opportunities for immersion. You know where that's the trajectory that you want to go into. It was one of the best uses of it was with Resident Evil Seven, where you know you want to play a horror game, right, and you just want to be part of that world. Now, the interesting thing for me was I always enjoyed horror sitting on the sofa. Like, Resident Evil was a game that you jump scared with your friends. Uh, but there's certainly a set of people where you being scared out of your wits by yourself with a helmet on is the thing
1: that they want. You've worked with so many video games. You, you've you've worked for so long in the video game industry. What What is maybe your favorite game or the game that you are most astounded by, and I'll give you my example first to show you what I'm looking for. And that is, I think the greatest game of all time is Portal. Uh, Here's a game in what made you think it was immersive. uh, It it used a a, a game, you know, a a, a device, a, a way of thinking that nobody had ever done before in a game in which you have to find your way out of this, this terrible place. Uh, what's, what's yours in that sort of that idea of maybe it wasn't the most fun to play, but it's the one that made you say, wow, this is an art form all by itself.
0: There are two really important game products in the annals of game history, in my opinion, that redefine genres and what are possible. And I say this as a professional, um, the first one was Mario 64 where we took a leap from 2D to 3D and Nintendo said this is what movement in a 3D plane should look like
1: mm-hmm. and it was and set smooth the standard. yeah
0: exactly and exhilarating and interesting um and the second one and I say this very biased because it's the reason I went to work for the company is Final Fantasy 7 which set the stage for w- what if a video game was like the world's best movie, right? And it was the first one to really mix CG animation and video and storytelling into a hundred plus hour world with incredible characters and music and moments. And, you know, these things stick out in your mind for decades to come. When I went to work for Square Enix. I, I was going to go work in banking um, and I had offers out to go work at some of the banks here in New York City. Um, and my, <clears throat> my school at the time, I was setting up the Japan trip for it. I spoke Japanese. I was an officer in the Japan Business Association uh, while I was doing my MBA. And, and one of the alumni was the head of HR four square enix and he says why don't you come interview with us i don't know if you're interested but try it and i i sit in their office with the music playing and the character figurines as i'm waiting for the interview it was the first time i was ever nervous and i didn't never nervous at the bank interviews like i was nervous like i i actually wanted that it meant something to me um and that's why i ended up working for them And, and working with the creators who built those games. And it was, you know, every day a joy to to go and learn those stories.
1: So, what did your parents think about, you know, you were you were going off to take a job interview to be a banker and you ended up
0: being <laughs> making
1: video games?
0: Oh, I, I was a lost cause to them, you know, <laughs> well before that. You know, Jewish kid, they wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I went and I studied Japanese history and I... <laughs> I Did a master's degree in Japanese history. I was a Japanese um, government. Now you're scholar not. not for a time. This is
1: this is audio, so people don't know you're not Japanese.
0: No, I'm not. Right. No, what
1: my, my, what makes a what makes a Jewish kid from from the New York City area decide that he wants to be speak Japanese fluently and become an expert in Japanese history?
0: I love the comic books and the cartoons. Huh? I mean, it, it's even weird. Like my parents were born in Baghdad. They fled to Israel during the pilgrims in the early 50s. Like my father grew up in a tent in the outskirts of Tel Aviv. And so like for them, the interest in the Japanese cartoon and comics and video games, super weird. (laughs) And then I go and I study the language and I spend a third of my life in Japan. I marry a Japanese woman and I eventually work for, you know, the CEO at the executive level of one of the biggest Japanese video game publishers um, and I, up until the pandemic started, I was still spending a week of every month in Japan. I have calls every single night. I had calls last night, tonight, and tomorrow with Japanese video game creators and executive producers who are friends of mine. Um, and I've really carved out an awareness of who I am in that space. But um, it's been a
1: journey for certain. Jacob Navok, founder and CEO of Genvid Technologies, which just landed $113 million in Series C. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at PressHereTV.com.